Randall, can I start? You are clear for departure, Ronan. All right, everybody, we are back with another edition of Behind the Yellow Line, a baseball podcast. Jeremy's here, Randall's here, I'm Ronan. Lots happening across Major League Baseball. We've got some Cubs front office news. Uh, Reports today, a new general manager has been selected. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Also some uh, speculation here that David Ross is on the cusp of a contract extension. We'll chime in on that. Across Major League Baseball, playoffs have been very compelling in the American League, in the National League. We'll give our uh, opinions and chime in on everything that's been happening in both of those leagues. Also today, the Arizona Fall League starting. The Cubs sending seven prospects down to the Phoenix area to compete against some of the best talent in all of minor league baseball. And then uh, we'll see where it goes from there. we got some Bears talk to get into, uh, but the playoffs roll on, and we're happy to talk baseball with you here this evening. Uh, Jeremy? I was thinking, I was walking around Denver tonight before starting the show, took Huxley out for a couple laps. Blackhawks sweaters, ab sweaters, making their way to Ball Arena. It's the opening night for hockey, and you're a big hockey guy. I'm sure there's reason for some optimism this year with the Blackhawks. Yeah, we'll see. That game's about to tip off, uh, or puck drop, I should say, not tip off. But uh, it should be an interesting year. The Cubs went out, they made some, or Cubs, I'm all messed up. Blackhawks went out and made some, you know, big acquisitions this offseason, uh, trade away a guy like Duncan Keith, who wow. was a longtime mainstay, uh, acquired Seth Jones, his brother Caleb Jones, uh, somehow was able to finagle Marc-Andre Fleury for absolutely nothing. So, yeah, I mean, Scotty Bowman obviously put a lot of effort into building this team. Well, I have some doubts and skepticism, but I, I do think there's a chance to make the playoffs and be nice to see a competitive Blackhawk uh, team again. And Johnny Tate obviously would be a big addition if he comes back around. Well, I'm not a huge hockey guy, but I'm excited that the season is starting here from a media standpoint. I'm curious what ESPN hockey looks like. I'm curious what Turner hockey looks like when the crack can get a home game. That's going to be kind of cool. So I think as uh, I wouldn't even call myself a casual hockey fan, uh, but as someone that it's sort of in my orbit, really from hanging around you guys, there's things that I'm going to be checking in on this year. And, and who knows? I know the abs got a good team, so maybe I'll get out here soon. Yeah, and last night, you know, we got that first game back, ESPN opening night, got the NHL to, uh, tonight theme, the NHL on ESPN theme. That was all real cool to bring back. And then tonight, you put on Turner, you got Charles Barkley in the house, talking, hanging out with Wayne Gretzky. Charles just loving it, talking about what a big hockey fan he is, talking about how much he watches, and then asking what the five hole is. Uh, it's pretty amazing. I loved watching him, you know, try to put on blockers and a glove and try to get in the net and put on all the goalie gear. Boy, I can't imagine anything that hockey coverage needed more than Chuck going, hey, Gretzky, who he play for? I love it, Randall. <laughs> right. I love it. We should get more of that, more Charles uh, impressions from Randall. We, we, need, we need a lot of impressions from Randall here coming up on Halloween, so make that yeah. so for us. Uh, Randall, I was thinking about you last night. One, this is an awesome time of the year because everything is happening. You've got college football, you got the NFL, you got the major league playoffs, NBA, NHL, college basketball is coming. So there's a lot going on. But I thought, Randall, you look well rested today. And I was thinking, let's see, Cardinals are one and done. Yesterday, then the Brewers and the White Sox go out. You must have had your best night's sleep last night in a very long time. Well, not especially, but that has absolutely nothing to do with the sports. You know, Ronan, I'd like to thank you actually, because the entire summer, you know, the random 2 a.m. texts, Cardinals, White Sox, World Series. 
Doesn't matter what time of day it is. Sitting there doing absolutely nothing. Look at my phone. There's a text. Cardinals, White Sox, World Series. Randall, you scared? Uh, so that's one less thing to worry about. And I'd like to commend you on using your Bob Nightingale-esque abilities to ensure that it would not come to pass. So good job. Well, in fairness, most of the summer I was saying Brewers, yeah. White Sox, World Series. And the you Cardinals- did a great job screwing that up too for them. <laughs> Well, uh, it was a bit of relief, certainly, to see the Brewers go out. And honestly, an awesome moment with Freddie Freeman hitting that home run. But we'll talk about the playoffs. I do want to start with the Cubs, though, here first. Uh, News that we got just before recording here tonight. Reports indicate that the Cubs have hired a GM, a position that's been vacant for the last 11 months. Carter Hawkins is the name that apparently rose to the top. He comes over from Cleveland, more than a dozen years of experience there. Scouting intern when he started, moved up. He was a former college ball player at Vanderbilt, which has been a very good baseball program. Uh, Jeremy, you know, you think about Cleveland. This is a franchise that's won a lot of regular season games over the last couple of years, and they've done it with something the Cubs have struggled with, and that's been really good pitching. So I think that's a reason for optimism here with Carter Hawkins coming to the north side. Most definitely. Uh, you know, the Cubs, see, it seemed like they had a clear focus on making this GM hire, Jed, Jed did. And they were trying to get guys that are very experienced in the development world of baseball. And from, you know, Carter Hawkins being a form, it was a very interesting list that if you saw that, Patrick Mooney and Saad of Sharma put out a few days ago where they talked about finalists, where it was four guys. They were all kind of somewhat a little bit different, but all very fo- much focused on development. And Carter Hawkins kind of had probably the most traditional background out of all of them in terms of being a former player at Vanderbilt, coming up through the scouting side of an organization, being primarily focused on development. The Cleveland Indians have for a long time gotten top marks. And as you said, uh, their pitching development. They've long had uh, a very high grades on their pitching prospects. Um, and that's obviously something that the Cubs looked at, saw that as a weakness of themselves. Um, they've done a lot to, over the past year or two, but that's something they've been really focused on lately. They re- they changed their whole development pr- processes over the last year or two. They have brought in Dan Kantrovitz as the scouting director who made his name basically in drafting pitcher, pitchers for the Cardinals and the A's. Um, so this is another guy that Jed wants comfortable with to focus on development, focus on getting those pitching prospects. And so, you know, I, I like the hire. I think it's a good hire, um, to bring in a young guy and to be honest, Vanderbilt itself for at a minor league or excuse me, at a college level, that's basically what they're known for as well. A lot yeah. of they are there. A lot of their coaches have moved up into the uh, major league, um, what Cubs did it themselves. They hired Derek Johnson, who was the pitching coach at, um, Vanderbilt, and he became the Cubs director of pitching early on in the Theo era before moving on to becoming the uh, pitching coach of the Milwaukee Brewers and then or, and then the uh, Cincinnati Reds, who's been and he's been very successful in developing pitching. So that's what Vanderbilt's been known for. So having a guy come from all those areas, I think I think it would be a pretty solid hire. It, it sounds like it's going to be finalized. Obviously, the playoffs, we don't know when it'll be announced. So I think it'll be a solid hire. Jeremy, to your point, two names that I know you put a lot of stock in, Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs and Kylie McDaniel of ESPN's baseball coverage, and asked the question, which AL organizations do the best job of developing pitching at every stage, including drafting and development and coaching and all that? They both named Cleveland uh, as their organization to to, uh, to be, be on top in those particular categories. 
And for the Cubs to take an individual responsible for a great deal of that and add him to the pitching infrastructure they have in place, it's very encouraging because the one thing the system has lacked for the longest time is impact pitching. So hopefully this can lead to the Cubs adding to the, the pitchers that they already have in the system who have some promise. And hopefully we can see a pitching rich minor league system coming of this in the near future. That's a great point. And, you know, I think at this point, I trust Jed's judgment. I, you know, I trust his ability to vet candidates that he knows what he's looking for. I also think that there's just so much talent in major league baseball front offices now, especially compared to like 20 years ago, you look back at teams that were built on previous Cubs playoff teams that we love. It was a whole different landscape that the only real concern I think at this point that you have with front office people is, are they a jackass outside of work? Yeah. And is it going to come back and burn us? The Jared Porter situation in New York, former Cubs executive. There was also the guy in Houston and I'm blanking on his name right um, now. Yeah. But he, Brandon uh, something. Yeah. Brandon, I can't think, I, I, I can't I think of his wanna, last name. I don't want to guess the wrong last name, but he was <laughs> basically uh, taunting female reporters in the clubhouse about Roberto Ozuna. And there's just so much to that. So that's really the problem with front office executives these days. Other than that, these teams are not giving these positions to anybody or just handing it to people that have been around the organization for years. These are folks that have a very, very refined skill set, and they're all kind of doing the same things. So I don't know if he's better or worse than some of the other candidates. I just like the fact that he is sort of scandal-free up to this point. And he's coming from an organization that develops pitchers. And as good as Theo was and as great as those teams were, developing pitching was, was a weakness. So let's get some fresh minds into the organization. Let's get some new voices. And let's see the Cubs develop some big-time arms here over the next decade. Uh, Brandon Taubman, T-A-U-B-M-A-N, yeah. is the, the name we're looking for here. So we don't want to uh, unduly impugn any Brandons who are innocent. And, and... Oh, yeah, I and the, the thing with him is that he was considered like the next big GM. He was one of those names that, that folks were saying, this guy's ready to take over an organization, especially with the success the Astros have had. Well, he demonstrated, you know, ridiculously poor decision-making, uh, uh, maturity, and a lot of other things that you could say, and now he's out of baseball. So that's <laughs> the real concern with these executives is what are they doing when they're not at work, and can that burn us? Well, the ironic thing about him, Brandon Tallman, was he was actually – against the trade for Roberto Ozuna. He didn't want to do it. He was one of the people that actually spoke out against it and said we, he didn't think it was a good idea to bring Roberto Ozuna to the organization. And then that's what he did a year later. Yeah. Um, Jared Porter, obviously, none of that was probably really known widespread publicly until you know the Mets hired him. So hopefully none of that would happen with uh, Carter Hawkins when the Cubs, he becomes more high profile. But I do want to say the one interesting thing I thought about with the four finalists that were named is they all kind of did have different, and they're all in development kind of, you know, but their, their backgrounds were all kind of very different where Carlos Rodriguez, the Rays guy who I, I kind of liked as well. He came up through like an international scouting thing. It would, uh, you know, being a focus on international players and developing them coming from more. And then, uh, you know, so that's kind of an interesting focus. And then James Harris, who's also from Cleveland, he had a football background. He did not really have a, a baseball background. He worked, he was Chip Kelly's chief of staff at the University of Oregon with the wow. Philadelphia Eagles. He was not a, a baseball guy. And he came in and he got the, a job in Cleveland. And he, he 
I've read some interviews with him. He was basically like, well, development's development. We're trying to do the same thing we're trying to do with college football players that we're trying to do with minor league baseball players. Um, and he, he had been there for five, six years. So that would be kind of an interesting hire. And I remember the Cubs had already made a hire like that. I believe Adam Beard, who does a lot of the strength and training and, you know, that type of physical work with my, the Cubs minor league operation, they hired him from the Cleveland Browns. So that would kind of been one of an interesting way to go. And then the last guy, Jeremy Zola, I believe he's kind of more of the traditional in terms of, like analytically inclined, you know, Ivy league guy who's come in in the mold of a Theo and, you know, all these other guys. So it, I think it's interesting. They went with Carter Hawkins who obviously going to Vanderbilt, is not, you know, an idiot or anything, pretty smart guy, but it seems like he had the more of the old school, traditional former player rise up through the scouting ranks. Um, and I'm sure he's fully aware, you know, being Cleveland and, and the modern day baseball player of all the numbers and analytics and everything. But I do think it's kind of interesting that they each kind of had a different background and they went with the more traditional guy. Hmm. Randall, you look at the organizations that they were targeting, Tampa Bay, playoff team, uh, Cleveland, not in the playoffs this year, but they've had a lot of success over the last couple of seasons. Um, Tampa Bay, Minnesota, these are organizations that have been developing minor league players. That says something, too, that the Cubs are targeting sort of front offices that are well-respected here in the league. Absolutely. These are all teams that we consider to be small market. You know, we can quibble over whether any team should be small market, whether ownership should spend. But these are all organizations we continue, we consider to be small market. And so these are organizations that have to hit on development because they're never going to spend a whole lot of money on free agents. Um, and so you can see where the Cubs were searching uh, in their search for a GM. They wanted somebody with a development rich background and they wanted somebody who can come in here and they can take this infrastructure that they've built as far as scouting and development and who can take it to the necessary next level. And you hope that the outcome is that the Cubs are wielding a, a uh, the Cubs are wielding two swords at once going forward where they have the money to spend in the free agent market, but they're also continuing to produce uh, productive major league players from that farm system. And for as much as the, the the top of those drafts hit when Theo was here, the bottom of those drafts and the middle of those drafts, they didn't really produce a whole lot. You need to do better there. And you'd hope that with somebody with a developmental background coming in, they can start doing that. Yeah. And my first thought right now is to start looking at like Cleveland's roster and seeing what type of players might be available or, um, you know, free agents and also some, maybe some Vanderbilt guys that are up. Maybe yeah. he has a special connection to some of them. So to see what, who are the guys that he might target as a GM, obviously Jed will be the final decision maker, but you know, he'll be, uh, I, I assume heavily involved and have a major role in shaping the team for the years to come. Absolutely. And peer behind the curtain a little bit of a, another successful major league baseball team, the types of talent, the players that they evaluate, even some of the scouting reports and things that he's seen, not just on the Cubs, but opponents that the Cubs have just to bring other voices into yeah. the organization, I think is very important. Uh, and yeah, that's coming, a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you reevaluate your own guys when you bring in someone that you respect, who's got a little bit of a different approach or a different style of doing this over the last couple of years, you know, yeah, I, and that, that's I, exciting. I 100% agree with you. I like the idea of bringing somebody in. For, I, I, you know, I had always assumed they would just hire a guy that probably had left and come, was coming back or something like that. So it was be another guy that, you know, that was basically in their organization, maybe got some experience somewhere else, but it was one of their guys. I like the idea of hiring somebody 
from somebody else who's gone through like and has a different mindset, a different process, yeah. and completely different than what the Cubs have been doing. And so maybe he has some ideas. Maybe he sees the weaknesses of what the Cubs are doing, or he has something different that the Cubs hadn't even thought of before. Mm-hmm. That was maybe standard in Cleveland. Who knows? That so I like the idea of having a, just a different mindset, a different viewpoint in the room. Well, I hope Carter Hawkins likes Wilson Contreras because that's a big part of pitching as well as your number one backstop. As we've talked about the last couple of weeks, this podcast wants an extension for Mr. Wilson Contreras, and we'll see how that plays out. We'll talk more minor leagues in a little bit. Arizona Fall League started up this week. We've got some things to get into on that. But on the Cubs' big league front, Jed Hoyer mentioned in his season-ending press conference, and this has been in the headlines for really the last couple of weeks, that a David Ross extension is a priority, very likely going to happen and work out here. So we're going to get some more years of David Ross at the helm of the major league team. Joined last year, it was a bizarre season. COVID shortened, Cubs win the division, eliminated in the wild card round by Miami. This year, 91 loss team, all the players we love traded away are awful in the case of Jake Arrieta. So what's David Ross? I mean, I'm not surprised at all that he's getting an extension. I don't think he's done anything uh, awful in his run here. This past season was a combination of things that go far bigger than the manager. And Randall, I like this. I like the fact David's sticking around, and I've got faith that he's going to manage the Cubs to multiple division championships. Sure, this is all about continuity. You know, you're bringing in a lot of, in the next season or two seasons, you're bringing in a lot of younger players. And you're, you've already got a lot of turnover on this major league roster. Most of your leaders are gone. Most of your veterans are gone. You've got a couple guys left. And I think the front office probably sees this as an opportunity to keep the same guy uh, at the head of things while you hopefully retool quickly and get yourself back to the playoffs. And I think switching managers at any time in the near future probably would have set that back a little bit. So I don't have any big problems with them extending him. I think he grades out more good than bad. And, you know, you'd like to see them put this much energy into extending a player or two, but it's good to have some continuity at the top of the organization. I, I yeah, I, I assume Ross will get like a three or four year deal. Well, it'll just be, you know, next year, which is already under contract, picking up the option and then maybe adding a couple of years to the end of that. But, you know, obviously coming in last year in the pandemic year is very difficult to have that as your first year ever managing in anything. So holding the team together, you know, pretty much making a playoff run, starting off very hot last season. Um, That's a successful year, I think. And then this year, you know, they had the issues with uh, the players being traded. So obviously, you know, 91 wins or losses, you can't really just put that on David. I will say, though, that like there were kind of some issues I would think in the uh, before there's those trades happen, that 11 game losing streak, you have Wilson talking about guys not trying to play. So I wonder how the clubhouse really was, you know, at that time and hearing from Chris Bryant, you know, the things he was dealing with at the time. So maybe not everybody was into certain things. um, And that would kind of reflect, I think a little bit on the manager, Um, but we don't really have, I I don't think we have like enough of a sample really to judge him because the first year was just so madness. And then this year started off, in the same vein and then everything happens and you trade everybody it's like we still don't really know what we really have in david ross and i like him you know obviously we have so much respect for him and and love for him for being <laughs> hitting a home run in game seven being the cub um so I, we want him to keep him around but i think he as randall said so far i i think he's done more than good more good than bad um i like most of the moves he's made most of the things he's said most of the way he's acted so it's obviously going to be another tough year probably next year, but I, I think that, you know, keeping the clubhouse, he'll, he'll probably he'll be solid in keeping the clubhouse together and building this team, which 
could be a younger team. Um, so I, I think it's a good idea to just keep them around. If we were evaluating a player, we wouldn't say a season and a half, especially in, in this time, in this scenario, would be enough to evaluate properly. I'd like to see David Ross manage a season where half his productive team doesn't get traded away and where they aren't playing a 60-game sprint. And again, he's a, he's a rookie manager. We don't think of him as being a rookie anything. He's the, the gray wolf, as John Lester used to call him. But he's been at this managing thing for a season and a half. I'd like to see him get a couple of normal seasons with a, a, a close to normal roster under his belt. And extending him is, I, I think, a good way to do that. Well, I've I've always felt that the David Ross signing was a signal of two things. One, the Cubs wanted to go cheaper. They definitely wanted to spend less money. He's a lot cheaper than Joe Madden in terms of the actual cost of having him in there. But I also think kind of the ego, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm not knocking Joe Madden. It's just David Ross would be more receptive to things Theo at the beginning and Jed now and Carter here over the next couple of years have to say. I think someone like... Uh, David Ross would be more open to lineup suggestions than someone like Joe Madden, especially after he won a World Series. And it's like, look, I brought a World Series to this town. I know what I'm doing. So I think that was part of it, that David Ross is almost more of an extension of the GM and the president of baseball operations than the previous manager was, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I said when they hired Ross two years ago now, if you can believe it, two years ago, we were getting news that they had hired David Ross over Joe Espada coming from the Astros. And it's always funny to me that it's right when the, the, the trash can scandal was about to break, how different would things have been if the Cubs had picked Joe Espada coming from the Astros organization, Carlos Beltran, um, he lost a managerial job before ever managing a game due to that scandal. So it would have been an even bigger mess than it already was. But I said at the time that David Ross is a more malleable individual as a manager than Joe Madden was going to be. And I don't think there's anybody who knows his mind quite as well as Theo at the time and Jed now. So I think that was a big factor in bringing him in. This is the guy that they respected and knew, but they also knew that he would take suggestions, as you said, a little more graciously than Joe Madden might. And I think that was a, a big factor in hiring him at the time. I think that's basically the modern uh, game. I, it was actually one reason why I was against hiring Joe Madden in the first place. I was not a, a fan of hiring Joe Madden because I thought that, you know, the Cubs would probably prefer to have a, a manager in there that was more an extension of the front office, like I assumed Ricky was, uh, Renteria. And uh, Joe would come in with us as a celebrity manager, kind of. It was one reason I was against Joe Girardi um, being, you know, more of an autonomous clubhouse. This is my team. I'm making decisions you know, whatever. I'm sure he'd listen to his guys. Joe always talked about how he, you know, all the guys in the data and everything, they give him the card, but it still would be Joe. He would run the, the clubhouse. Whereas I, I assume David Ross is basically as a first time manager learning, obviously relying heavily on a guy like Andy Green, but he's, you know, he's working hand in hand with the yeah. front office. He's not doing, every, I, I can't imagine he's doing everything on his own there. He's, they're working with him. The decisions that are being made are not his decisions. They're making them together as a group, I believe, for the most part. Um, so I, I thought that was one of the reasons why uh, they hired him. And you saw early on when the Cubs did hire, there was one of the type of guys they looked at, like Dale Swaim, um, Ricky, as I mentioned, the guys that what they all brought in to replace Joe Man. These were all the types of guys they looked at. I, now, obviously, Joe was a free agent at that time. It was right moment, right place. But... Um, I, I always thought that that's kind of the guy that they wanted to type to fill that role. 
Jeremy, you brought up a point here a couple minutes ago. I've been thinking about it since you said it. Really that there were some signs of fractures in the clubhouse prior to players getting traded away. And you mentioned the Wilson contract. I mean, there was obviously tension in the clubhouse to the point that it leaked out of the clubhouse, that it got to the media, that you and I know that it happened and that we're able to talk about it. But even before that, with spring training, players not wanting to get vaccinated, despite the fact that the pitching coach, for example, Tommy Hadovy, had a horrible bout with COVID, was pleading with players on the team, do this, not just for yourselves, but for your family, your wife, your kids, your parents, all the support staff around us. And obviously the buy-in didn't happen at all so and this was you know you go back to last year david ross and the cubs were the only team in major league baseball that had no COVID problems until the vaccine popped up cubs didn't have any problems following protocol and doing what they had to do vaccine pops up now you've got players that don't want to do it coaches pleading with the media pleading with the players nothing happening there i think another underlying thing there though that would have fueled tension in that clubhouse was a lot of those players who knew that they were on expiring contracts, had contracts broken off with the front office, and they knew that Hugh Darvish had just been traded. Like they wanted to go into this season thinking, we're gonna win the division, let's go win a World Series. Before the offseason really gets going, your best pitcher gets traded away. So what message did that send to those guys? All contract extensions were cut off prior to spring training, and it was just big giant question mark going into the year, almost like a ticking time bomb. Yeah. So, I- David Ross had a lot on his plate, I guess is the point I'm trying to make there. No, definitely. It was, it was, a, a, I, I'm not trying to blame it all on Rossi. I'm not saying he was responsible. And when you go back to the vaccine problem, it's really tough when it's your leaders of your clubhouse yeah. are the guys that are not doing If Anthony Rizzo, Jason Hayward, Jake Arrieta are the guys that are against it, then it's tough to, you know, Baez, Contreras, Brian all got it, Kyle Hendricks, Ian Happ. But those, but those other leaders, those are not guys you can just, send away you can't just cut anthony rizzo you know at the start of the year so it's very it's a difficult thing to deal with um and it's unfortunate and then when it comes back you're right on you know we read chris bryant's thoughts the whole time about how he was basically relieved to get traded like when the deadline came he was kind of mad not mad but he was kind of angry yeah because he thought he might be the only guy to stick around and he wanted to get traded um, he was just ready for it. He was ready for it to happen. He was ready for it to go. And dealing with all that, for him dealing for it for years, probably, being rumored to be traded, um, it, that's tough. And so when those guys have to deal with that, it, it does weigh on them. And then they start losing. I mean, I'm sure in May and June, it was probably pretty fun. But once you start losing, everything's like, well, we got to flip the script now. We're thinking about trading. Then that becomes tough on those guys. And And then those last week or two that last month that probably was a very difficult clubhouse to deal with. You know, yeah. Chris Bryant thought he was going to get Trevor storied. Um, But, you know, we're, we're, I think we're talking about the SI article about Bryant's final half season as a Cub and the headlines on that, by the way, were terrible. They made it sound like the Cubs were like psychologically torturing Chris on the way out, which that's not the case. And I want to say one other thing, (laughs) Ronan, you know, my thoughts on this, you both know my thoughts on this because you love, you love dancing around this, but the, the incessant trade rumors every winter for the last, what, three seasons, four seasons, you know, I hate those because they're almost all the time completely made up or they're leaked by an agent. You have no idea if they're made up. You know, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to say most of the time. You have absolutely no idea if they're made up. Okay. I'm going to say absolutely most of the time that they are probably not as true as they would like to be. And if we find out someday that I'm wrong, I'll own up to that. But 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to argue for the millionaire baseball players here who are going to be just fine without me advocating for them, but that, that matters. It, it, we can see it bothered Chris to be told year in and year out, Oh, the Cubs are thinking about trading you to this team, that team that matters. And I know we're not going to stop the trade rumors. I know they're not going anywhere, but you know, I, it, it matters the, the players hear this stuff and it, it makes life harder for them and their families with that out of the way. Yeah. Chris was relieved to be traded and you can't not be relieved to be traded. You know, you're probably on the way out and you're just relieved for it to be over. So reading that article, I felt bad for Chris having to kind of wait. They detailed some struggles with his family that he and his wife went through. And it just made me feel bad for Chris. And I'm glad he landed somewhere where he's clearly very comfortable. Yeah, I I would. I I mean, there's no way over the past two, three years, the Cubs didn't make it be known that Chris Bryant is available. And if teams want to talk about Chris Bryant, they were willing to talk about Chris Bryant, whether things came out from other teams, their teams, they definitely were having talks about Chris Bryant, um, whether any specifics were exactly the same. I, I don't know, but you know, there, there's talk that that Nolan Arenado trade, that, that thing went down pretty far. And I've heard that seems coming from various sources, you know, that report that reported that, that the Cubs were in pretty deep discussions about a Nolan Arenado trade. Um, and right now, if you're looking at it, I would, a lot of people, when we talked about the deal with the Atlanta Braves, there are people out here that were they never didn't want, I would have taken an Austin Riley trade. I was always okay with that. Like, Hey, I liked Austin Riley and a couple of these prospects. If they were willing to do that, I would do that. Austin Riley's killing it. I think we'd all wish we had Austin Riley. Um, so I don't know. It's obviously very difficult. But it's part of the game. It's 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 you sign up for it when you're a major league baseball player, um, and you're paid well to deal with it. And it's difficult for Chris, um, you know, to deal with in any of those players. Uh, and fortunately, I, I you know he uh, got sent to a place he sounded like he wants to go. Sounds like he's very happy being. I wish the best for him, and hopefully he has a very successful career. Um, I don't see him <laughs> coming back to the Cubs. No. No, nope, nope. we got all off season to talk about guys that we think are coming back. I got one final thought here on David Ross at manager. You think about all of the challenges or responsibilities that a big league manager has. And if you try to pinpoint maybe what is the most difficult part of being a major league manager, you're trying one, you're competing against very good teams with great analytics, wonderful baseball players. You're trying to keep guys healthy over the course of half of a year. But I still think, man, the most difficult thing, is managing the egos and personalities of, in the Cubs case this year, 69 different grown men who passed in and out of that clubhouse over half a year. And these are guys at the beginning of their career, the end of their career, guys making 25 million a year, guys making 600K a year, which in the baseball world is obviously a small number, not in the real world. But when you've got a guy making 600 grand next to a guy making 25 million, there's a big disparity there. I think just managing these guys year in and year out has to be the most difficult thing for a big league manager. So when I'm looking at all these managers here in the playoffs, I'm thinking, I wonder what that clubhouse is like. I wonder, I wonder what player on that team that manager really hates, not maybe on a baseball standpoint, but just dealing with him or having to, to hang around that guy all year, even members of the coaching staff that maybe the manager doesn't totally get along with. You hear stories about that all the time, but it makes it compelling. It's real life drama. It plays out right in front of us. It's why I love following this sport, even in the off season. Yeah, you, you have to remember the nobody, none of these guys are robots. They're not androids. You know, no. they all have feelings. They all have real lives. Um, 
it's difficult. It's difficult. It's a difficult thing, you know, to be able to be, you know, coming in, being around the same people every day for 162 basically days flying across the country for however long they have to deal with all these people. More than that, honestly, it goes into spring training and possibly yeah. the playoffs. Um, it's just a, you know, obviously there's friction and it, and there can be at times. And what happened at the middle of the year was unfortunate for uh, the Cubs, where you know players were calling out other players in the in the media. Um, I, I would also like to note this is the 40th episode, so we do have a lot of Wilson Contreras mentions so far in this that's episode. That's right. I think so. That's a good point. That's actually where I thought you were going with the Carter Hawkins thing. Hopefully, he likes Wilson. Um, <laughs> this is our 40th episode. So yeah, and I, and I think it's only fair to give David a chance to start from the beginning of a season yeah. with a team that, for more, for better or worse, will probably be the actual team at the end of the year. Um, you know, they might sign a guy to try and flip or something, but so I think you give him a chance. See how he actually does in a real full season. Hey, Randall, I'm thinking about number 40 here. So I've pulled up the numbers, the great website, CubsByTheNumbers.com. Number that I want to talk about for a minute. So Wilson Contreras, since 2016, has sported the number 14. Uh, some other great names 40. over the years. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, 40. Goodness. What am I saying? Hopefully here? not 14. Otherwise, that'd be blasphemy. <laughs> some other great uh, numbers or names, rather, from over the years. Rich Harden, if you remember him. Phil Nevin, the pitching coach. Larry Rothschild. Todd Wellemeyer. There's a name. Shoulders, as Randall used to call him. The former relief pitcher for the Cubs. Miguel Cairo wore it back in 2001. Oh, Henry. Henry Rodriguez, 1998, 1999, 2000. You keep going back, though, and the names just keep flowing. Rick Sutcliffe. Rick Sutcliffe wore number 40. Dennis Eckersley wore number 40. Um, Mike Kruko, the broadcaster for the Giants, former Cubs pitcher. All broadcasters are named right now. <laughs> <laughs> the number 40. And then going back to my dad's days, one of his guys, D. Fondy. 1951 to 1957, he wore number 40. A couple other names in there. Dad would know him, Chuck Connors. And then Charlie Grimm, the manager in the late 1940s, he also wore number 40. So, Randall, this number honestly is up there with one of those all-time, not in terms of retired numbers, but one of those all-time really good numbers in Cubs history. How can you forget Spencer Patton, Ronan, who who will will forever be known as the guy to wear number 40 right before Wilson Contreras? Trying to see if there's anybody else here. James Russell. There's a name that you haven't thought who about. Who could forget about James? Who could forget James Russell? I try all the time. I didn't he like go away and then come back? I thought he did. I remember. He did go yeah. away. He comes back. I remember the Cubs trying him as a starting pitcher. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. A, what an odd career for him. I feel like he came up as a starter and then that did not work and they moved him back. But uh, you know, Eckers, like you mentioned, Eckersley, Kruko, and uh, Sutcliffe. That's three yeah. pitchers in the '80s. Or is Kruko a pitcher? I believe so. Pitchers yeah. in the '80s that all became broadcasters. Um, and then you got Miguel Cairo as what is he? The White Sox bench coach now and a former Cardinal. Uh, and then uh, Phil Nevin making news with a terrible send of Aaron Judge at home in the wild card <laughs> game, where everybody went after Phil Nevin. So it seems like that's a number that a lot of those guys are relevant in baseball today. And you know what? Henry Rodriguez will never not be relevant. No in Major League Baseball. And for that case, neither will Todd Willemeyer. He had a memorable debut oh, as I a remember. Chicago Cub. He's also, if I believe correctly, responsible for the Cubs not running out to the field to jump anymore. That was Todd Willemeyer's doing? Yeah, I believe he <laughs> told, it was in 2005, I, I want to say Todd Willemeyer said that they, we needed more relevant music or something. And it was like the first time they, they stopped using it since 84. Well, Todd Willemeyer, you're wrong. All I want at Wrigley Field, the only music I need to hear at Wrigley Field is play it on the Lowry organ. I, I, they've just turned up the music at Wrigley Field, new sound systems and everything. 
does nothing for me. Give me the organ. And I know I've told you guys this before, but if I were a Chicago Cub and the organization came to me and said, hey, Ronan, what's your walk-up song? Or what do you want to be your walk-up song? I would say whatever it is, I want the organist to play it live. That's what I don't need to hear a little 10-second MP3 recording. I want to hear that organ. I want to hear that cranked up. And if I had a home run at Wrigley Field, when I'm rounding those bases, I want that organ going. That's how I'd do it. Yeah, definitely. That'd be awesome. Jeremy would get a little PJ on the organ. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, What's that song, Superman? Kryptonite. Kryptonite Kryptonite on the organ. I'd get something from the band, a little Garth Hudson on the organ at Wrigley Field. We're going to talk Major League Baseball playoffs, but Randall, you planted a seed here a couple minutes ago, and I have to ask this question. You're talking and, and sort of complaining about national baseball writers. You even said that I'm the Bob Nightingale of this podcast <laughs> earlier, which I is a terrible blow. I did at that. In your opinion, which national Major League Baseball writer is most likely to have committed a Schefter? Is most likely to have committed a Schefter, to give our listeners some, uh, some context. Adam Schefter it, admitted today in response to uh, a lot of NFL front office and coaching emails being made public, Adam Schefter admitted that in the past he sent uh, an entire story about NFL CBA negotiations to one of the is it team owner. Is that what Bruce Allen is? No, he was the, well, he was president. Dan Snyder's their owner. Okay. So team president for the then Washington football team, now Washington football team. And he basically sent him the whole story to, to veto or to approve. So to me, easily the writer most likely to commit a Schefter is John Heyman because he already does it. He already <laughs> just publishes whatever the agent's, or the executives tell him to, to publish. Sometimes I suspect he doesn't even edit it at all. I think he just copies it from his texts and pastes it into Twitter and sends it on his way. So I'm going to go John Heyman, easily the national writer most likely to commit a Schefter. I, I, Heyman would definitely be at the top of my list. One, I was one of the IFAs, but I wouldn't be surprised if Rosenthal's done it, uh, mm. considering all the scoops he gets. You know, See, I'm but sure the, difference is, information. the difference is I like Rosenthal. I don't like Heyman. Because so. I feel like Rosenthal's more of the Schefter. Schefter He's pro- you know, you're probably right. He probably um, is more But Jay- I, Heyman, I definitely, definitely, Heyman's just a mouthpiece. So Damon definitely, for Scott Boris, whoever, you know, Scott Boris tells him something, he put that out there. But, then, but actually, I had a question for you, Randall, that you reminded me of just now, because I was thinking about it when we were talking about Cleveland with the uh, Indians who are becoming the Guardians. When do we stop referring to them as the Indians and start yeah, referring when's to them that as official? the Gardens? What, when's uh, that line? I mean, for my for my purposes, I would say, um, I would say January first. Like, if January you want 1st. an arbitrary date, or you know, maybe as soon as there's a new CBA, whenever that right. comes about, whenever you consider the new MLB year to have begun, like I, you can make a case for doing it as soon as the the, the this season ends say that the, the former Cleveland Indians have already played their last game. So you could call them the Guardians right now. The next time they take the field, they will be the Cleveland Guardians. Right. So do we say that the Cubs are hiring Cleveland Indians assistant GM Carter Hawkins or Cleveland Guardians? Well, for GM my money, Hawkins. I'll say they hired him away from Cleveland okay. so as to phase the name out that much quicker. Um, you know, if, if I really, really need to use the team name, I'll say the former Cleveland Indians. And as soon as it becomes current, you know, so they, they didn't hire him away from the Guardians. They hired him away from the former team name. But going forward, you know, they're the Guardians now. So, Rowan, you got an opinion on that? You know, I, uh, I've actually normalized it to myself via out-of-the-park baseball. Ooh. I got a sim going here. 
and I decided to preemptively, this was for the 2020 season, that's when my game starts, change the Cleveland Indians to the Cleveland Guardians, and I've kind of gotten used to it. I've gotten accustomed to just seeing it in the standings, seeing it in news Did you change the logo? That the game, you know, I went with the generic C, a red C logo, uh, and I just kept it at that. I'm sure you can get the actual logo, right? I probably could. I probably could, but I've kept it. The big thing was an adjustment for me. Um, What I also tried to do on this sim is just sort of anticipate some rule changes. So even though it's the 2020 season, I've got a permanent DH only in the National League. Roster size is 26. The expansion size is just 28. Um, Maybe I'll make some changes now to other CBA elements to it, but it's sort of normalized it to me. Um, I, I think it comes right after the World Series is technically November for whatever the first day after the World Series is is when that switch happens. Um, but Randall, you're being sort of neutral here. You're being like Switzerland for us, and I need you. I like when Randall gets more animated. So I want well, to go I back. Am, to I am the Swiss there. Army knife, Ronan. So Ooh. think local, drink local. Which Chicago Cubs reporter is most likely to have run a press release from the team by the team? before releasing it to us? Uh, Boy, that's a great question because half the local writers hate the team (laughs) and would never actually do that. Um, I'm going to say Bruce Levine, maybe, but he would (laughs) kind of Levine it up by adding a whole bunch of unnecessary commas and spaces and bad punctuation. Um, You know, the rest of the the current beat reporter crop, I think is actually pretty pretty good at their jobs. I think they're pretty independently minded. I think they're not going to run something straight from the team if they smell a rat in there. so I'm going to say Bruce Levine because, okay. you know, guys like guys like Wittenmeyer, they hate the Cubs. He hates because Wittenmeyer's not doing it. <laughs> yeah. Wittenmeyer's not doing it. And yeah, Sullivan's Sullivan's not doing it. So I'm going to say Bruce Levine, probably most likely to just run a Cubs press release uncritically and pass it off as reporting. Well, I'm going to say this, Randall, and I know it's not going to make you happy, but um you need a Gordon Wittenmeyer. You need many Gordon Wittenmeyers covering a team. That's the problem um, is we have many Gordon Wittenmeyers. Limit it to one, and when we'd, we'd be in better shape. But, you know, I, I want those people pushing back at the Cubs. I want those people writing critical articles of the front office. I live in a city where nobody writes anything critical about literally the worst-run organization in Major League Baseball. The Denver Post prints press releases from the Colorado Rockies, and they call it journalism. So I, it's not that I love Gordon Wittenmeyer's writing. I listened to bits and pieces of his podcast with Cap the other day for uh, something, and I was just laughing at how fucking terrible it is. You know, look, we're not perfect here at the high and the yellow line, but for God's sake, it's bad. It's bad. But you need Gordon Wittmeyers. I want members of the press to hold those in power accountable, even if they're a dick. Journalists kind of have to be dicks to do their job effectively. Adam Schefter's a weasel. What I also think is funny, though, is all this outrage, like, oh, how could an ESPN reporter do this? ESPN is in bed with the National Football League to the tune of $14 billion over the next decade. So let's cut the bullshit here that there's some journalists with integrity covering this league. Honestly, they've got a business partnership, a multi-billion dollar business partnership with the league that they quote unquote cover. So I'm not surprised that this happened, and it absolutely happens in Major League Baseball as well. They're in bed with all their rights holders, yeah. you know, everybody. But uh, Schefter in particular, it, it came out a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, two ago, that he was invested in a gambling site. So that he was uh, in a, you know, investing in that. So he's, he, he, whether his, you know, there's not much journalistic integrity ethics there over at ESPN to begin with. They're, they're you know, they're mostly blowhards for the organizations, the rights that they, they cover. 
Um, but I, I always find it entertaining when you hear like the end of the year press conference or a major press conference, which maybe there'll be a major co- press conference to introduce Carter Hawkins. And hopefully there's a lot of major yep. press conferences to introduce some players this off season. But I like, you can always tell when Gordo or a guy like him is the one asking the question, you can just yeah. see it come across Jed's face or whatever, <laughs> you know, the question you're like, you just know. And it's always, it's, I always find it, you know, funny or funny to listen to. I want, I want to say one more thing, Ronan. I know you're probably eager to move on to talk about the playoffs. The Cubs have not hosted a major press conference for an off-season introduction at the current Wrigley Field. Wrigley Field was still well under construction when they introduced Lester ahead of the 2015 season, uh, when they introduced Hayward ahead of the 2016 season, uh, and they introduced Darvis in Mesa, in Mesa ahead of the 2018 season because he signed so late in the off-season. They have not held... A, an introductory press conference for a, a big ticket guy at Wrigley Field, which is kind of funny if you think about it. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, hopefully soon, though, some big time free agents, maybe this winter, probably likely next winter, but it's coming and we're going to be tracking it here. Do you want to talk to Major League Playoffs? Let's start in the American League. Both divisional series are wrapped up. We'll go through this pretty quickly here, but Boston over Tampa Bay, wonderful upset there. The wild card team knocking off the team that won their division, the American League East. And Jeremy, how about Kyle Schwarber? Right in the middle of all of it. It was awesome seeing him celebrating on the field at Fenway Park the other day as the Boston Red Sox move on. Yeah, he's just killing it. I mean, he's been amazing this year. And he's a guy I was kind of okay with, you know, letting go, but now I'm feeling like, Hey, we got a DH spot open next year. If guy wants to come back for that, I'm okay with that. Um, and as you said, kind of an upset, I was big on the Rays. I thought the Rays were just a very smart run organization. It seemed like they had great players everywhere. Um, I thought that, you know, they would be the team to make it out of here, at least, you know, to the ALCS, but they had some craziness in the, in, in that series with that rule that it seems completely ridiculous in terms of it seemed to be honest, when I watched it, it seemed obvious to me. Like my first thought was that's a ground rule double, but I'm talking about that, the ball that hit yeah. and came back off the fielder and went back into the stands. And my thought just generally, I'm just like, Oh, that's a ground rule double. That's two bases, whatever. And then just listening and thinking about it and, and hearing everybody else's. And I'm like, that is kind of ridiculous. Like you can just teach outfielders to bat the ball into the outfield. Like if you see a ball running down, like it's a ridiculous rule. Yeah. Um, it should be more of an umpire discretion in my opinion. So, but you know, Tampa got knocked out and then, or they got knocked out of that game. And then they had a, a hard fought game uh, again in, in game four and they just weren't able to do it. And you know, that's how, how it goes. And now we got Alex Cora making it back to the ALCS. I had Tampa coming out of that series too. I thought they were just the better team. I thought they were more balanced, but that's what happens in the postseason. The better team goes cold in a, a short series. And here we are, Ronan. I know you weren't a real big fan of the Rays reaching any kind of milestone, any kind of acclaim this offseason because of what they don't spend on that team. Were you were you very happy to see the Rays out and the Red Sox advancing? Yeah, and I was just happy Fenway Park got that party. There's a bit of a brotherhood, I think, between the Cubs and the Red Sox. We got the two oldest ballparks. We had the two longest streaks without World Series championships. And Fenway, they were just in it in a way that... White Sox erasure right there. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was awesome to see... The two longest streaks for the White Sox and the Cubs. (laughs) Well, no, but... Uh, was was the Sox number two? Yeah, well, all right. Because nobody ever talks about the White Sox. Nobody cares. <laughs> White I, yeah. Sox erasure. That's just, <laughs> just, that's, just saying, that's just Wednesday night. 
<laughs> I was just happy to see them get that moment. And it's fun seeing the home team in that case, get the win and the dog pile on the field and all the fun that goes with that. Um, I don't like what Tampa Bay has done as a, an organization in the sense that they never go for the kill. They've built some great teams. They're competitive every year, but they never do the thing to win it, to go over the top, to sign that guy and to get that guy. So fuck them. <laughs> they, don't, they couldn't even sell tickets in the upper deck in that ballpark. They're talking about splitting their season in Florida and Montreal. It's an absolute travesty. It's an absolute travesty that the Tampa Bay Rays are run the way that they are. It's not good for baseball. So I don't want them to have a team anymore, and I don't want an owner to only be concerned with what's the most wins we can do for under $70 million or whatever the number was. It's insane. It's not good for the sport, and it's not good to never go for it. Like, people have been ripping the White Sox this week. Oh, that Kimbrel to Paratrade didn't really work out. The Cubs got these great players both of them had their moments of struggling here in the playoffs. At least the White Sox went for it with regards to that. I think they could have done more, but at least they went and got one of the best relief pitchers and another good relief pitcher and tried to do what they could to win in the playoffs. The Rays don't really do that, so I don't want to see them celebrated for it. So go Boston. Yeah, I, it's just hard for me to be like, they're a team that's won, you know, 100 games. They win 90 with some yeah. games, whatever. And then to, to think, like, it, that's a really great team. So, they, I mean, they have been a really great team for a long time. So, you know, I I would love to see – I think the way that they're – I agree with you. I think their ownership is terrible. Um, I, I do think that they if they had an actual ballpark, maybe where, like, people lived, they would probably get some more fans and have more engaged. But they um, could have that. <laughs> Well, yeah, they the could. Order have would that. just need to pay no, for the damn thing to be built. I'm, I agree with you. I'm just saying. I, I, I agree with you. I think the ownership is the worst part of that franchise. Yeah. I think Stu Sternberg, and you know, he's obviously had, you know, as a Wall Street guy from New York, and he, he brought that to baseball, and he's done very successful with the guys he's hired under his tenure. The Tampa Bay Rays have been a very successful baseball team, um, in terms of winning baseball games. Um, but, and I, and I, and to me, I do find it impressive that they're able to do that, that they're able to work like that. And they are able to, they always have great development. They're always able seemingly to trade the right guys at the right time, get the right prospects back. And somehow it always works out for them. So I find that very impressive. I like seeing it. I, I, I do. I, I would agree with you. I think that their ownership leaves a lot to be desired. Um, cause they, they should be. That's a team that I feel like, and I understand what you're saying that they're not spending more, but I feel like they should be celebrated more by their local fan base um, in terms of, because they're winning all the time. And the fact that they aren't is just a reflection of how horrible their ownership is. So I, I agree with you on that. Um, but I've always kind of liked them just because they're so successful at doing what they do and watching them play. And they're like a fun kind of team. I've always felt like, like they, they don't hate the players. Yeah. They've got great players, but they could have better players too. If ownership would spend a couple dollars. Well, not not they to worry when they build games. when they build new stadiums in Tampa and in Montreal as part of this plan. I'm sure the money will will just flow freely. They were they were selling it the other day. I saw I saw a quote from someone saying they they've ruled that baseball in Tampa isn't feasible, and the only thing they can do is just you know be in Montreal. It might even be the team president or something. Be in Montreal and Tampa half the year. I'm like, oh, okay. good luck with that. 
So the Rays are out. They fall in four games. The other American League series here, the Houston Astros over the Chicago White Sox. Randall, the White Sox were never really in these games except the one that they won, the Sunday night game on the south side. Uh, other than that, I believe the loss margins were 5-5-9. Five, five, and nine. So some tough losses for the White Sox here. Marvelous season. They get to the postseason, and they lose to a very good Houston team. Well, Houston is very good. They are, they have a relentless lineup top to bottom. White Sox pitching was just not quite up to it. Um, I, I don't want to sound like I'm gloating here because I know there are a lot of good Sox fans out there who had very high hopes and uh, they, they and see it end in four games. To our pod. Yeah, all those dedicated Sox fans we have listening, right. Um, so yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm gloating, but White Sox pitching simply was not up to the task. Lance Lynn was not up to the task. Lucas Giolito, uh, not able to shake the, the burden of being in that, that mortgage commercial that calls him the worst pitcher in baseball or says that he was their, their starting pitching simply wasn't up to it. You were getting short outings and against a team like the Astros who can put up a bunch of runs in a hurry, uh, the, yeah. the inevitable happened and the, the pitching simply couldn't keep up. Um, so again, I don't want to sound like I'm gloating. I do want to say though. I said at the very beginning, Tony La Russa is the lead weight around whatever team hires him. <laughs> and I just don't see how that team will ever take the next step with Tony La Russa well, at the helm. They, Dusty and him were ready to throw down. You know oh, what? Yeah. That would have been the only thing to make that series entertaining is an old is a septuagenarian old man fight at home plate. <laughs> yeah. Dusty Tony. and his tooth Dusty and his toothpicks and Tony La Russa wielding whatever he wields. I don't know. Yeah, and Tony accusing uh, Dusty of intentionally throwing at him and Dusty saying it wasn't but i, I was kind of on tony's side on that I, to me it seemed obvious but i i yeah. there's a lot of people that apparently don't think it was obvious at all but i i'm like part of the problem i think was the fact that the announcers who i liked aj and wainwright um and adam amin the ball game was out of hand so they were just talking about you know things to do around the city going to art institute and stuff so they weren't really paying attention to it but the the, the game itself, you kept saying high pitch after high pitch, and Tony's yelling out across the field, and another high pitch, and then finally, and Tony's yelling. The whole time, Tony was yelling. So, like, everybody on the field knows Tony's yelling, and then he gets hit again, and Tony's out of the dugout. And I think it wasn't until they got hit that, like, AJ, Adam, and Adam, I guess, were all, um you know, actually focused on it. And they were like, oh, what's what's going on here? Like, we weren't – um it's a, you know, it's a blowout, so whatever. But as you said, the White Sox – were never really kind of in this series. Even the game yeah. they won, the Astros were a five to one. Dylan Cease got knocked around a bit. He left early. Uh, Kopech got hit. Um, they're up five one, and then it comes back. Grandal hits the homer, but Grandal probably should have been struck out earlier. If he, he, I know Randall will love this with a probably a bad call from an umpire that changed that bat. Probably changed the game. Should have been two outs, one on. You don't say, Jeremy. Go on, tell us more about Grandall what the umpires the did. Homer. Grandall hits the homer, then Larry Garcia hits a homer. It's a 6-6 game eventually, and then just total fluke inning against Granky. And, like, Granky got, like, five weak ground balls, and he got, like, no outs to begin with. What Grandall did with the ball hitting off of him, like, that inning should have been, I don't know. Like, that's not – even though the White Sox won, I, that the way they won in that inning was not something I would think, like, okay, this is clearly a team that's – you know, hit, hitting the well, playing well. They just got and got like this flukish kind of win, in my opinion, that didn't really showcase the way they played. I, I still thought the Astros might have outplayed them in that game. Um, so I, I just think it's clear to me that White Sox, and I don't really know how they're going to do it this offseason because they have their payroll does go up, you know, a lot. And I don't know how much they're going to pay. Right now, even if 
if they pick up Kimbrel, which it sounds like they might, I mean, Nightingale, they'll pick him up and trade him. I don't know. Maybe they won't pick up Kimbrel and, and Cesar Hernandez. Even if, if they pick those two guys up, their payroll is basically like $30 million higher than it's ever been. And that's without doing any moves in the off season. So I don't know how much, like, are they really planning on spending? Now they're a pretty good team, but they have obvious holes. So it's interesting to me how they're going to try to navigate in this off season and what they're going to try to do um, to fill those holes, because you can't fill right field with no more Mazzara and Adam Eaton, you know, and a lot of the p- p- pieces they have to plug them in aren't really outfield types. They're kind of first base uh, DH types where, you know, even, uh, you know, Andrew Vaughn, Gavin, Cheese, these are not really guys that can play the outfield, even Aloy, uh, who's a good hitter, not really the best to have out in the outfield. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do with those holes, because I, I don't know where they go from here. Um, I, Cause I think, there's clearly a pecking order in the air. I don't think they're as good as some of those other top teams. I think they're a good team and I don't know how they're going to do it. And they, I think the central is only going to get better next year. Tigers are breathing, breathing yeah. some fire right there on the side. And Sox. I don't expect the twins to be as bad as they were this year. Well, we got all off season to, to talk about teams, not just the Cubs, but what other teams in baseball are going to do back to the playoffs. Dusty's dancing. It's five straight American league championship series appearances. Now for the Astros, that's an incredible run. I think I speak for everybody in the planet when I say go Red Sox. Take that American League pennant. Let's see You're what happens. Root for the no, cheater and Alex no issue with that. I'm sure for, for Schwarber and I'm on both sides. Ever it's uh, yes, that's fair. You're rooting against future it's, Cup Carlos Correa. I am. He's definitely not coming to the Cubs. I am <laughs> definitely though anti Astros, and um, my hate for Dusty's died so much. Over the last decade, I that's okay. I, was, I got enough for all of us. Wow, you, <laughs> I yeah, was happy you, to see him beat. Tony. Yeah, I kind of would like to see. I mean, I don't want the Astros to win either, but I would like to see Dusty win a World Series. I don't. He, well, those him, two things don't add up. I know because I think this yeah. is the end of Maybe the line. Maybe Dusty, Dusty. gets traded. Traded uh, mid. Uh, I don't know. Tony's managing at seventy eight. Dusty's only like what seventy two. So we got like five six years. Maybe find another team. And he's got just like two or three more teams to manage before he's hit all thirty in Major he's League Baseball. He's still got to manage the Pirates. He's still got to manage, you know, through the AL Central, NL Central, the Brewers and the Cardinals. Uh, back to the National League, though. Randall, you were celebrating last night. This was fun. The Atlanta Braves over the Milwaukee Brewers, three games to one. Freddie Freeman, who, boy, he's making more and more of a case. This guy may end up being a Hall of Famer by the time this is all said and done. He hits the game-winning home run, eighth inning yesterday. Something that struck me, not really about baseball. You know, when I'm watching these playoff games, I like to focus on the fans and the ballparks and the excitement. I was very skeptical of Atlanta moving out of downtown, building this suburban ballpark. I didn't really like the design of the ballpark when I first saw it. I think there's missed opportunities in there that could have incorporated more Southern architecture into the design of that ballpark. But that place was rocking. I think that ballpark is aging well. The area around it appears to be growing. There's some life there. It was kind of fun watching baseball in Atlanta. And I remember even those great teams in Atlanta in the 90s, Turner Field never felt right. Maybe they did something right after all. And hey, beating the Milwaukee Brewers, that's always right in my book. Boy, I said I didn't want to gloat over the White Sox losing because, <laughs> you know, I didn't I didn't want to rub it in for the, the White Sox fans. I got no such compunctions here. It's fantastic to see the Brewers out and to see them lose because Josh Hader gives up the game-winning home run in the eighth and to see them lose because Christian Yelich stands there, mouth open, foul breathes, flowing through his gaping maw eyes bugging out as he stares at strike three it's it's cathartic you know if if the the postseason is to turn me into this being of incandescent hatred for the teams i don't like then so be it but they're all gone now 
And uh, it, it's fun to see the Brewers go down. Uh, if anybody cared about that team, you wonder if they would be writing articles. Does that front office need to be reshuffled? Does Craig Council need to go and be replaced with someone with slightly less weasel DNA to him? But, you know, I don't think anybody cares about the Brewers that much. I think, and now I mean that in the meanest way possible, but I also mean that in the means of, I think expectations are a lot lower for the Brewers. And I think if they kept winning division titles or making the playoffs as a wildcard team, but never accomplishing anything, A, that would be really funny. And B, I think they would consider that satisfactory. I think they're in a much more just, you know, get in and let whatever happens happens than they do of actually having any goals of building uh, like a world series team. Now, again, that's, I'm probably very biased on the subject. So don't necessarily take anything I say as the authority on the subject, but you just wonder, does anybody up there? And again, this is their 18, 19, 20, 21, fourth straight season of making the postseason with nothing to show for it, but an NLCS game seven, you wonder, does anybody up there think that the team needs to be reorganized or reshuffled or a change needs to be made? I don't think, uh, I would be very surprised if any change was made. First of all, no, I think I'm David, not saying they, I'm not saying they will. Make I think changes. David Stearns is a great GM. I, I want, I keep wanting the Mets to hire him. I think he, well, he I think he, that's the change that could happen is he gets hired away. But the, the problem is, is uh, he is an up-and-comer, and he's from New York, but their owner, Mark Antanasio, is a guy who's very anti. He holds people to contracts, and he still has a year left on his deal, so I, there would have to be some sort of negotiation. And maybe that's possible, but I, I, I don't see him as a guy. I don't know if he's going to leave, um, but I think he's a great uh, – and I think Craig Council, you know, as much as I don't like him over there in that match, Weasel. I think – I think he's done a phenomenal job. I, he he always seems kind of to make the right. I mean, he has a great bullpen, but he always seems kind of make the right bullpen move at the right time, and it works out for the most part. Obviously, it didn't work out this time with uh, uh, Freeman homering off a hater, but that's not on him. Um, and you know, Freeman had already homered off a hater before, but another lefty to homer off a hater, hater joining Hayward and Anthony Rizzo, so that's pretty cool. I I don't know. I think the Brewers are a good team. Uh, whether I think they definitely are trying to win the World Series. I think they're definitely, I don't know if they have the ability to do that kind of, um, if, if Christian Yelich isn't the Christian Yelich of two years ago and his contract extension hasn't started yet, uh, it's kind of, they're kind of in a world of hurt right there. Um, so that's going to be a difficult thing to figure out for them. But they're a team that scares me. Uh, they have such great pitching that, and they've always dominated the Cubs, it seems like the last couple of years with Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns, Freddie Peralta. Like we can't hit them. So I, I, they're still a team that even next year, I don't, no matter what, I, they would be a team I, I would peg pretty high in the well, division. Yeah, Jeremy, one thing about Craig Council, he's great at, he's a great at being a weasel. It, it's one of his major skills. He's very weasel-like. Uh, I'm just saying the difference between the Cubs and the Brewers, if the Cubs made the postseason four straight seasons and didn't get anything out of it other than taking it to game seven of, of an NLCS, what would the reaction be to that? And the reaction would be, does a change need to be made? Now, I'm not patched into the Brewers. I certainly don't read any of their writers. I certainly don't associate with any of their fans. Um, <laughs> again, I'm going to stop here before I, I get myself in even more trouble. But I, I'm just saying the expectations, I think, are different for the two franchises. I think if the Cubs made the postseason four straight years and got nothing out of it, I think you'd have a lot of people with uh, very, very fiery takes about it. And I just haven't seen that about the Brewers. And again, it's very much could very much be a thing where I'm not looking for them and therefore I'm not seeing it. There could be writers for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel or whatever the paper is. Well, you there, need to but... start reading some more Kalen Cato tweets because Boy, he's definitely Jeremy, out there. <laughs> I need to do a lot of things in my life 
reading more of that guy, not on the list. So I, I'm just saying, I think there's a difference in expectations between the two franchises. There's a lot of difference. Between well, the two I, there's definitely a difference in expectations. I mean, the Brewers aren't trotting out $200 million payrolls like the Cubs were. So, um, you know, I think they'll get a little bit more leeway than the Cubs would if they're trotting out $220 million payrolls. And, and, and as we talked about, the Cubs have more reporters that'll tend to, you know, Gordon Whitmire is your guys that'll hold people to the fire. I don't know if Milwaukee has that. Um, as much as obviously not as big of a city as Chicago. So it's probably more insular. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think the Brewers, I think they've, I, I, I think they're, I, I think David Stearns is a great GM, like I said. So I, I would be very happy if he leaves. I would be very, very happy. Well, Bernie the Brewer crawls back into his hut, but don't feel bad for Brewers fans. They got the defending champs in the NBA. That season's starting yeah. up. The Packers, Packers are playing really good football after their week one debacle. So, Brewers fans, you had a nice season. Have an offseason. I'm not going to tell them to enjoy their offseason. Have an offseason, and we'll see you next year, Cubs-Brewers. I love those games. I love the rivalry. They've been a tremendous addition to the National League Central. And Cubs-Brewers games, yeah, it's been lopsided the last couple of years, but they're fun. Always great going up to Milwaukee, too, to catch a game and maybe the first career home run for Chris Bryant. All right, one other game in the National League. We're going down to a game five tomorrow night. This is really good stuff. The Dodgers and the Giants, a great baseball rivalry. The first time they've ever met in the postseason. So, of course, it goes to the elimination game. We've seen a little bit of everything in this series, including a one nothing Giants victory at Dodger Stadium. Evan Longoria with a home run on Max Scherzer. That's all the offense. We've seen some tremendous defensive plays. Brandon Crawford had a run-saving, leaping catch in that one nothing win. So we go to San Francisco, you flip a coin. Uh, this is what we wanted. We talked about this last week on the show. Just get it to game five. I'm looking forward to this ball game tomorrow night. Everything about it is going to be entertaining. It's going to be a great game. I, I hope so. Um, it's a great, already been a great series. In my opinion. Those, those games felt like games at Wrigley. To be honest, the ones at Dodger and the balls never carry as well. I feel like at night at Dodger, they said the other night was like the windiest day yeah. in Dodger history. Um, and that feels like a game at Wrigley. How many times is it that uh, it seems like only one team could hit a solo shot and then the Cubs just crank the ball like the home team is just cranking the ball, hitting it hard. And everybody think, and the wind just holds it up. And that just felt like it just felt like a Wrigley game. And Brandon Crawford makes two great plays on Mookie Betts. Um, a couple balls, Chris Taylor hit a ball that probably should have gone. Uh, and then obviously Gavin Lux at the end, you know, from another Wisconsin guy, uh, hits a ball that probably should have gone. And it's going to be interesting. It, it's, it's a little bit, you know, if, if the Dodgers win, then pretty much everybody that was traded this um, midseason, there's nobody left if Chris Bryant goes pretty much. Um, so that'll be, oh, Jock, I made that same mistake. <laughs> That Randall made that corrected him. That's funny. Sorry, Jock. Sorry, uh, Jock. Jock. We remember Ooh, you. I, I forgot because I was going to talk about Jock, and I spent it all on the Brewers. And Jock with the pearls and killing it. So it'll be interesting. But, uh, you know, and Ryan Tepera, just to go back, probably shouldn't have made those comments about the Astros because it seemed like it really ticked them off in game four. Uh, and 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 he had a history of kind of saying things. He said Delighted for that to be some other team's problem. He, do, he said it kind of about the Brewers, you know, and he got suspended. You know, oh, yeah, I hit them. Yeah, don't say that. Um, but, uh, yeah, as we all said, it should be a great uh, series, and hopefully we'll get a great game five. And it's a great rivalry, so it'll be very fun. And going back to San Francisco will probably be a tough place to play because they'll be rocking. Yeah. It's going to be fun. Um, prediction time. Pick the city. Let's start with game five. Jeremy, Dodgers, Giants, who wins it? Dodgers or Los Angeles. 
Los Angeles. Okay, Randall, who you got? I'm going to say the Giants. I think home, home, home field in game five is too much to overcome. I think the Giants are going to pull this one out. Dodgers are the better team. San Francisco wins it. KB, walk off home run, boys. Wow. Let's have that moment in the day. Wow. National League pennant. Jeremy, who takes it? Los Angeles. Randall? Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Giants. I'm gonna go Giants over the Braves for the National League pennant. Atlanta Braves. Wow. That's my call. Taking the National League pennant over the American League. Who takes the pennant? I'll say Boston. Yeah, I'm gonna go Boston. I'm gonna go a Boston San Francisco World Series. I think MLB will be delighted. Two big markets, two big cities two voracious fan bases. I think MLB would be very pleased with that. And we, of course, would get to see Chris Bryant versus Kyle Schwarber in the World Series. You're missing the natural storyline here. The battle of Cubs left fielders. Oh. Jock, KB, Braves. Also the Boston connection there. The Braves and the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Saying. In the Fall Classic, but the I, left field. I wanted to focus on Peterson and Schwarbs, and then the connection there with the Braves in Boston. That'll be fun. But anybody but Houston. That's really how I feel at this point. I just don't want to see the Astros rewarded, um, or really any of those players. Bunch of cheaters. Okay. It would be fun. It would be fun if Boston had to go through Milwaukee and then go to, or excuse me, if Atlanta had to go through Milwaukee and then go through Boston. It's like avenging all their old cities. That's right. You got reliving history or avenging on them, I guess, not avenging. <laughs> well, let's come back to the Cubs here for a minute. I uh, just wanted to bring this home. The 29th Arizona Fall League kicked off this week. No season last year because of COVID-19. Quick overview, if you're not familiar with it, it is a 30-game season that takes place from October 13 to November 19. Each Major League Baseball team sends seven players and teams partner. So the Chicago Cubs have a partnership with Oakland, Toronto, Miami, and Baltimore as the Mesa Solar Sox. And one thing about the Arizona Fall League, so much talent has come through that league. This year, three of the top six 100 prospects are there. 16 top 100 prospects in general are there. But you go over, more than 3,000 players who've appeared in the Arizona Fall League have made it to the big league since 1992. Nearly 60% of all fall league players have reached the majors and there's hall of famers who've pitched in the Arizona, Arizona fall league, Roy holiday, also position players, Derek Jeter and Mike Piazza. You think about current all-stars, Vlad Guerrero, Jr. Bryce Harper, Max Scherzer, Mike Trout, just a handful of names who've worked through the Arizona fall league. Uh, some great names there compiled by Jim Callis of major league but this is fun. Season starts, Cubs prospects, Randall, seven in total, participating in these games. What Cubs are comprising the Mesa Solar Sox this fall? Well, as Ronan, as you said, the Cubs have sent seven prospects. Some of them are upper-level prospects, guys they really want to get some more innings to, guys they really want to get a look at. And some of them are kind of fringe guys that, A, you got to fill out your seven players. And, you know, maybe you think that there's some potential there. So headlining it for me are Ryan Jensen and Caleb Killian. Ryan Jensen, of course, their 2019 first round pick. So starting pitcher, he's got velocity. He throws mid to high 90s with great movement. He pitched in uh, at high A, South Bend and double A, Tennessee in 2021. They clearly wanted to get him more innings and more starts um, coming off of the regular season in the minor leagues. And that's exciting because this is a, this was a advanced college pitcher when they drafted him. And this is a guy who, if he continues to advance, you could see him in Wrigley field by late 2022 or early 23. So that's exciting. Caleb Killian, 
the starting pitcher who they got back in the Chris Bryant trade. He is also on the Mesa roster representing the Cubs. It's exciting to see him potentially getting more innings too. He lost some time due to Tennessee's COVID outbreak at the tail end of the season. So they clearly wanted to get him uh, a couple of more starts in the AFL as well. And there's one other name that I think is really intriguing. And that's Brendan Little himself, a former first round pick a number of years ago. He's up there in age. He's 25. He pitched at double A and triple A here in the 2021 minor league season, but he's added velocity. He's got a great slider and he's, and I'm quoting uh, bleacher nation here, but he is absolute death on left-handed hitters. Hmm. So he's, you know, an older guy, he's more advanced. He's the sort of guy who will probably come to spring as a non-raster invitee with a chance to make the opening day bullpen. And so it's potentially exciting to see him in the AFL getting these extra innings too, especially because a lot of these guys are eligible to be taken in the rule five draft this off season. And this is part of how the Cubs make that decision on who to give a 40 man spot to and who to leave unprotected and risk losing for nothing potentially if another team takes them in the rule five draft. So it's exciting to see players like that who could factor into the big league club sooner versus later, getting these innings and getting these at bats against other top prospects. And that's what you like to see out of the AFL. Yeah. For me, a, a guy you, you didn't mention uh, Nelson Velasquez, I thought was pretty interesting. Um, he's a guy who was fifth round pick a few years ago. Didn't really, you know, out of Puerto Rico, hadn't really uh, done much in his uh, minor league career comes back uh, this season after the COVID year, he kind of has a different body, looks way more athletic and he, he was just killing it. When he, he went to high, um, high a, he performed pretty well. He got the bump uh, decently. Well, he got the bump up to double a to Tennessee and he started just killing it in Tennessee. He was hitting homers left and right. It seemed like um, he, he hit 290, 358, 581 in Tennessee. So, and he's only like 22, 23 years old still. So uh, at being an 18 year old when he was drafted, you know, in the fifth round. So I, I think that's an interesting guy. Um, and Ryan Jensen, obviously a guy that when they drafted him out of uh, Fresno state, I believe he was kind of, you know, it was kind of a different kind of pick for the Cubs because the Cubs had always drafted kind of polished college pitchers, uh, guys that, you know, they were more uh, probably more advanced in terms of being closer to the majors and whatever. Brian Jensen was like a raw college pitcher who threw hard. And it was, it was kind of the first clear sign that the Cubs were looking to do things differently in their pitching development. Uh, he, he had mechanics that were kind of all over the place. He was throwing like 98, 99 miles per hour. He was kind of raw and it was just like, okay, Ryan Jensen's the guy that we kind of have to work with and build. Um, and, but he's got the tools. He's got the talent as opposed to these other pitchers they've been drafting that didn't really pan out for the most part that were more like they're, 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 they're cleaner, but they may not have had the same high end talent. And so I, I think that's interesting that um, he, he's kind of made big gains this year, moving, moving up to double a moving up and that they're going to put him back in, uh, in Arizona fall league, obviously to get some more looks. And I, I think that's uh, an interesting development for him. Yeah, it's, it's good to see him getting those extra innings. He's another guy who you'll watch to start next season and see how he pitches and where he advances to because that's a guy who could factor in for the Cubs sooner versus later. Well, it's a bummer that not more of these games are televised. You will get a chance to watch the Fall Star game as well as the championship game. Both of those are on the MLB network, but day in and day out, unfortunately, Major League Baseball doesn't stream these. And that's a bummer. I think that uh, there's so much talent. More than half of the players that you see on that field are likely to make the majors. 
That's been it since day one. 60% of the players have advanced to the major leagues. So you're seeing the next or the future stars of the game if you could actually watch them. I also think that these games should draw more folks. When I've seen pictures and video of them, very, very empty down there. I think there's a missed opportunity for Major League Baseball there. Play this up. There's about a million college students in the Phoenix area. Do dollar beer night. Get the college students out there to see these great players that are their age or even a year or two younger than them. I think that there could be a room for that down there in the Phoenix area. And while I have no interest ever in living in Phoenix, if I did live down there, I'd be at AFL games all the time. It looks like a lot of fun. If I lived down there, I would live underground where it is slightly cooler. <laughs> a little bit cooler. A little bit cooler. I want to I want to say one other thing about the the AFL before we potentially move on. I love that the the six teams, they're all so quintessentially Arizona. Yeah. The Mesa Solar Sox, the Glendale Desert Dogs, it's a coyote on their hat. The Peoria Javelinas, they got one of the little warthog creatures on there. The Salt River Rafters, which is it's just a pair of wave lines, but it's a nice name. And then you have the Scottsdale Scorpions and the surprise Sejuaros. And that, of course, is a scorpion and a cactus on the hat. I do like that they are so quintessentially um, Arizona. And I like the aesthetics of it because the players yeah. all wear their major league organizations, home and road jerseys with, you know, name and number on it. But they wear the team hats. And I like the aesthetics of that. I like the aesthetics of a guy wearing the Cubs white pinstripes, the only Cubs white pinstripes we're seeing in October um, with the, uh, the Mesa Solar Sox hat. I like the I like the imagery of it. I was going to ask you if you had a favorite name of all of those. What what one rises to the top? You know, it's probably the saguaros, the saguaro cactuses. There's something, again, quintessentially Arizona about playing for a team named after cacti. Um, so I'll, I'll go with the Mesa Solar Sox for the Cubs connection. But I do like the name, the surprise saguaros, because it sounds like a cactus jumped out of nowhere and surprised you, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun. And kind of inoffensive who the major league teams are there. It's the Nationals, the Rangers, the Royals, the Yankees. The Reds would be that borderline team in there that you don't care so much for with surprise. Mentioned with the Mesa Solar Sox, it's the Cubs, the Blue Jays, the Athletics, the Marlins, and the Orioles. And if there's one team here, Randall, that I don't think you like, it's those Desert Dogs, Glendale, other than Anaheim. Like Houston that. Astros, St. Louis Cardinals, Los Angeles Dodgers, Chicago White Sox. That's the team you don't like. There's too many teams in there that you're not a fan of. You can't cheer for those future Cardinals, White Sox, or Astros. We know how much that, uh, as much as I love the coyote on the hat, I hate those Glendale Desert Dogs. They're, they're, my, they're my next uh, team rival. We'll, we'll add that to the list. Well, let's bring it home with this. We've been ending every show talking about the Chicago Bears. Last week, I was the lone optimist on the show saying the Bears were going to Vegas. In front of the home fans, mostly Bears fans, they were going to win that game. They win that game. John Gruden's out for a whole bunch of stuff that he shouldn't have been doing. Bears-Packers this weekend. Soldier Field, this is awesome. This is what we love. Jeremy, who's winning Sunday? Well, I've been to a lot of Bears-Packers games at Soldier Field, and unfortunately, more times than not, I've seen my heart get stomped and seen the Packers win. Sometimes it is in, you know, dominating sometimes in last second fashion. And I'm unfortunate to say, I think it's going to be the same. I think the Packers are going to take another win here. Um, I expect Aaron Rodgers to do what Aaron Rodgers does. And she, I, I, I win football games and throw like, touchdowns against the Bears. Aaron Rodgers can't even name all the Bears quarterbacks that have been there during his time as a Packer. They asked him today, he can name about four. Um, so I, I think Aaron Rodgers is gonna 
do it. And I think the Bears, I think it's unfortunate, but the Bears will get their first home loss of the season. Yeah, Jeremy, the way the way you took your hat off, the way your hair's flowing, as you said, I've been to a lot of Bears Packers games in my time. It's clearly the visage of somebody who's seen some things in his time <laughs> and he's still experiencing the trauma. From I've it. seen some things. You know, Randall. I'm gonna I'm gonna couch this as I so often do. I think Justin Fields is gonna have hopefully another good day. He's gotten better and better as Nagy has given up play calling duties. I'm gonna say the Bears win a close one. I think Justin Fields has a great day. I think this defense has trouble stopping Rodgers. He'll probably get off one of those untimed downs he does when he draws the other team off sides, or maybe the refs will miss a, a delay of game and let him get one of those plays off late in the game that we've all seen before. I've seen some things before. I think the Bears lose a close one. I think Justin Fields has himself a great day. Well, you both suck. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Fair enough. Bears win Sunday. I'm all in on this Bears team. I think yeah. they've got new life. Have you picked them to lose yet? With an offense? No, no, I haven't. But I, <laughs> I, I really... I have felt that every game that they've played, they could have won. The one that I felt least most confident about, to be transparent with you both, was opening night. That, to me, was the real wild card. But since then, I felt that they could win every game. I think a new offensive – or not, a, not a, the fact that Nagy's not calling plays has brought new offensive life into the team. They suffer a terrible injury at running back, and yet they're getting contributions from the backups. Fields is getting better. The defense is good. Special teams is good. I think that the Bears are going to split the season series with Green Bay, and I think it's going to include this weekend at Soldier Field. And I look forward to coming back to episode number 41 of Behind the Yellow Line and telling you both to shove it again <laughs> for having no faith and confidence in Justin Fields and the Bears. And let's go beat those Packers because, damn, they beat the crap out of our team for most of our life. Absolutely. Yeah, unfortunately. Let's, let's make it happen, Ronan. Let's make it happen. Well, Jeremy, you're going, so uh, bring yes. home a W. We'll be back next week with episode 41 of Behind the Yellow Line. I wish you folks could see this. Randall is waving aggressively at me saying, Ronan, stop, wave. stop, don't end the show. We must go on. What do you got? One more thing before we finish it off tonight, Ronan. It was on this night in 2015 that the Chicago Cubs played the St. Louis Cardinals in game four of the National League Division Series at Wrigley Field. There was the famous Schwarber, Kyle Schwarber, hitting the home run over the right field scoreboard. The Cubs put the devil magic to bed, at least for a season or two. Pat Hughes with one of his greatest calls ever, saying, yeah. I wish you could all be right here at this moment. What a great night. That was the night the Cubs won the World Series. And obviously that's figuratively, but that was the night the Cubs said, we're ready to take that next step. And they did. And, you know, I one more thought. You, well, I don't have a whole lot of love for national broadcast teams. I think they're too general for us who watch home broadcast the whole year. But one of my favorite broadcast moments is whoever was in the TBS booth that night watching Kyle Schwarber a season and a half after being drafted, hitting tank home runs over the scoreboard and just being incredulous, going, mercy, what in the world? Oh. Unable to believe, unable to believe what they had Dennis seen. Eckersley. This, was it Eckersley? Okay. Eckersley this... was, there was a three-man booth. Eckersley was one. He's the one who called him baby, Babe Ruth. And he's right. been going off. He's been doing the same thing now because he calls all the Red Sox. Watching, watching this combination warthog fire hydrant come up from the minor leagues a season after being drafted and hitting these 450-foot home runs in the playoffs. One of the great games we've ever seen. Former well, by... Dennis Eckersley. And the show comes full circle, talking about him earlier, former number 40 for the Chicago Cubs. If my memory serves me correctly, and it's been tested six years here living at Elevation, uh, B.A. was on play-by-play -play for that, uh, the Milwaukee Brewers broadcaster. Who's and there was a, there was a, it was a three-man booth. I'm trying to remember who the – was it Jim – Joe Simpson, I think, was the third man? 
I just, I, I'm not sure, but I remember BA on the call and a great call uh, on that Schwarber bomb out to right field. Well, that's all. We're back with 41 next week. We've got Cubs that wear 41. We've got more front office news. We'll get an update on the postseason, and we'll talk a little AFL again next week as well. Uh, see what the Cubs prospects are doing down in Mesa. We'll see you next time. Go Cubs.